a memorial of what the Lord did for us. In other words, to commemorate him. And that's why the instruction is, do this in remembrance of me. So when we come together, it is the church, as we gather together, our participation in Christ as a, a group, as a body. It's also a celebration with a mixed emotion. Our mind goes back to his sufferings on our behalf. At the same time, we become jubilant because he resurrected. So as we celebrate this, it is an occasion to recognize that as you partake of the bread, that not only that the bread represents the body of Christ being given on our behalf, but also that we belong to the church of Christ. As we celebrate the cup, we indicate that we are sharing in the blessings of the death of Christ that includes the forgiveness of our sins. So it is a solemn occasion, one that has to be taken very seriously. And so, the Lord warned believers through the church of, in Corinth about this, taking this lightly. And therefore, we have that warning when it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is to say, some of those in Corinth went home after participating in this, in this celebration and died. And some got sick because they took it lightly. So it's not a lighting, it is the significance. Therefore, before you partake of it, you need to examine your soul to ensure if there's any sin that you have picked up during break or just before you sat down, that you've taken care of it in order to be qualified to partake of this without incurring judgment on yourself. For this reason, we we'll spend a few moments here in prayer. And each person will examine his or her soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this privilege that is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ, who instituted this for us to do in commemoration of him. Therefore, as we begin to celebrate, may God the Holy Spirit enable us to understand, 
the significance of what we're doing. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Father, we are thankful for the celebration of the call. We are pleased to continue to call us to focus to celebrate the Christ's name with us.
you want to turn to 186, the old rugged cross, and please stand.
Before the break and before the Lord's Supper, we started our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. We made several comments about the subject of love before we began to consider any of the characteristics. The first comment we made is that believers should be interested in the subject of love for at least two reasons. One, because of its importance in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, that we are commanded to love each other so that that will be a hallmark of us being believers in Christ. Second comment, that there is confusion today about the subject of love. In part because one, the influence of entertainment, uh, industry, and two, things written by the novelists or social scientists that confuse people about what love is. Third, com- uh, that we made, third comment is that it is difficult to define love and so it is the least understood word in the English language. Now the Bible, uh, nowhere of course, defines love in one or two sentences, but indicates it is demonstrative. So it is difficult then to define love because it is an attribute of God. Fourth, that although it is difficult to define love nonetheless, we offer a working definition of love as a thought action phenomenon that involves a subject and object whereby the object is benefited. Now, the object is, will, all, uh, will always be someone that receives your love, so to say. Now, so we've indicated that that definition removes love from feeling to thought-centered. Now, this definition, we say, fits well with what John says about love that God, uh, God has demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we went through and uh, commented a whole lot about First John chapter 3 from verses 16 uh, through 18. Now, so we, the fifth comment is that love expected of a believer is not something that is natural to the individual. Therefore, it exists only in the sphere of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Sixth, that Apostle Paul considered love as indispensable element of the functioning of a local church. And so, it is so important in the life of the local church. Seventh, that the Apostle personified love as he used 15 verbs to describe love. So with these comments, we then stated a message that we believe you should bear in mind as we study this passage. And that message is this. You should taste your love claim by comparing your love to the positive and the negative characteristics of love that the Holy Spirit provided in this 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So with that, we began with the first characteristic. The first characteristic 
is that love is patient. So, we say that, yes, because love is patient, that it means that it is being even tempered while enduring trying circumstances. You cannot tell if you have love for a person until you are patient with that individual when they wrong you or irritate you. If you can handle that without complaint, then you are having love towards that individual. So a second characteristic of love concerns the quality of compassion and generosity as given in the next sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 where we are starting. It says, love is kind. Now the expression is kind is translated from a Greek verb that means, I mean that appears only here in the Greek New Testament. It means, alright, to be kind. Now the verb though is related to a Greek noun that refers to the quality of being helpful or beneficial. Thus then the sense of the verb in our passage is to be kind. That is to be warm hearted, considerate, humane, gentle and sympathetic. Hence if you love someone you should be warm-hearted and considerate towards that individual. But this warm-heartedness is evident in the action of a person that possesses this characteristic of love. Now this second characteristic of love, again, indicates that love that is advocated for believers to demonstrate is that produced by the Holy Spirit. Since kindness is another aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, as stated in the passage we cited, and we say we refer to several in this study. And that is again Galatians 5.22. You don't need to uh, write it down or go back, just listen. Say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, uh, patience, kindness. That's the one we're looking at now. Goodness, faithfulness. So, kindness is an action-oriented word. So that unless a believer is controlled by the Holy Spirit in displaying kindness, that then the individual could not claim to have this love that is the fruit of the Spirit. And we say this because unbelievers are capable of kindness. For example, the islanders of Martha that showed kindness to Apostle Paul and others with him following the shipwreck that he and those traveling with him experienced indicate that unbelievers can be kind as in Acts chapter 28 verse 2. Acts chapter 28 Verse 2. Acts chapter 28, verse 2 reads The islanders showed us unusual kindness 
they built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. So anyway, if you claim to love someone, you demonstrate it by being warm-hearted and helpful towards that individual. That is, you show kindness to the object of your love through action or actions that benefit the object of your love. So we indicated then that something can be characterized either positively or negatively. Draws the apostle goes from the positive description of love to a negative description of what love does not involve. Now precisely, he listed eight things that love avoids. That is, he tells us things that will not exist when there is love. The first negative description of love is concerned with envy. As in the next sentence of, of the NIV of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 reads, It does not envy. That's love. Now this is a, a strong statement about what love does not do. We say this because the word law not here is translated from a strong Greek negative that is an objective negative denying the reality of an alleged fact fully and absolutely in contrast to another Greek negative that is a subjective negative implying a conditional and hypothetical negation. The negative the apostle used here shuts down or shuts the door to the possibility that the person who has love is characterized by envy. Now the expression does not envy or the word does envy is really translated from a Greek word that is used both negatively and positively. Negatively, the Greek word may mean to have intense negative feelings over another's achievement or success. That is, to be filled with jealousy or envy, as it is used to describe the attitude of the Jews in Thessalonica towards Apostle Paul, as we read in First Corinthians, first, I mean, to, from Acts chapter 17, verse 5. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. He reads, But the Jews were jealous. So, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So positively, the word may mean to be positively and intensely interested in something, and so means to strive, to exert oneself earnestly, to be dedicated. Same Greek word. Now the positive sense of, of the word deals with 
what is described uh, or what is so desirable so that the apostle used the word three times in his epistle to the Corinthians to instruct them regarding spiritual gifts. Twice he used it to encourage the Corinthians to desire spiritual gifts in general, as for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. It reads, Follow the word of love and eagerly, that's a Greek word, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of prophecy. The apostle also used it for desiring for, uh, desire for exercising the gift of prophecy. Still in that 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, look at verse 39. Verse 39. Verse 39 reads, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, in our passage of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 4, it is used in a negative sense of to be envious, that is, to have intense negative feeling over another's achievements or success. Now, with that, by the way though, uh, some English versions use the word uh, jealous instead of envy in their translation of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I mean chapter 13 verse 4 when they say he does not envy so that it reads, for example, in the New uh, Century Version this way, love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Now the word envy and jealous are related that often the two are exchanged for each other. Now it is difficult to differentiate the two though, but there is a difference. Now Vine's Expository Dictionary of the New Testament uh, was gives a good distinction between them. According to that source, envy, desire to deprive another of what the individual has, while jealousy, desire to have the same or the same sort of thing for itself. So that's the distinction. The other one wants to deprive, and the other one just wants to have what you have. Now, see, we can see that. Uh, envy or jealous is something that cannot characterize love. So when you have all these things uh, in some marriages they are doing, they are in competition. They don't love each other. You can't be in love and you're competing with your partner. Your spouse, you can't do that. That cannot be love. Unless that, you know, one is succeeding whatever, the other one gets very jealous or gets whatever it is left out or whatever feeling that person has. That cannot be love. Because when you love, you cannot be involved in envy or jealousy in any form or shape. So we can understand the reason though. Love does not envy. Envy is certainly a sin. As the scripture implies, in the list of the activities of the sinful nature, 
stated in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Galatians Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21. It reads, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, and as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So envy them as a sin occurs when a person has a negative feeling towards the success or the good fortune of another. It is therefore not surprising that the psalmist indicate that it is the prosperity of the wicked that triggered envy in him, as we read in Psalm 73, verse 3. Psalm 73, verse 3. Psalm 73, verse 3 reads, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So, it is the prosperity that triggered that in him. Now truly then, to be envious of someone is an indication that a person does not believe God is in control of all things, including successes and failures, as well as the person is rejecting that God is the one who gives uh, things to people, as per the declaration of John uh, the Baptist, when some individuals were pushing him to really be jealous of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what he said as recorded for us in John chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. John chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. It reads, To this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. So, if you believe that God is in control of everything, including success and, and um, failures. When a person is prospering, or whatever it is, if you are jealous of it, you only say, God, 
I don't believe you control things. Or maybe you question him why he did whatever he did. So if you understand this, you never be, you know, whatever you have, God gave it to you. Therefore, you don't sweat over it as we say. Anyway, we indicated previously though that Apostle Paul's detailed description of love is in part rooted in the failures of the Corinthians. Now the characteristic that love does not envy is a rebuke of the conduct of the Corinthians. See, the apostle had chided them for jealousy that definitely involves wanting power and wanting the spiritual gifts of some whose gifts are spectacular. So the apostles' charge of jealousy, for example, against the Corinthians is stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. First Corinthians chapter three verse three. First Corinthians chapter three verse three. It is you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Now here the word jealousy is translated from uh, the Greek word related to the Greek verb used in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. So that some English versions use the meaning envy instead of jealousy in this passage. Now that aside, the point is that there was envy among the Corinthians. So that the apostle in effect is telling them that they were not exhibiting love that is expected of believers in the local church of Christ. So anyhow, we insist then that it is human success that often gives rise to envy. Now this understanding that envy arises because of someone's success should enable us to examine if we have love towards another person. You see, if a person is successful in whatever the endeavor is, and you resent the person, then you could not claim to love the person. If you inwardly resent that person, you may not tell them, but inwardly you resent it. At that point, don't claim to have love. Now the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul then tells us that where there is love, there cannot be any resentment towards another person who succeeds even in an endeavor that we fail to achieve. You fail to achieve it? If you love them, you're happy for them. You don't envy them. So the point then is that it is our reaction to the blessing of others that determines if there is love. Whenever there is uh, resentment to a person's good fortune, love cannot be present. So anyway, the first 
negative thing that love avoids is envy. The second negative description of love is concerned with boasting. Boasting. As conveyed in the sentence of First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, where we are studying, because it reads, It does not boast, as love does not boast. Again, this is a strong statement because the Greek word that is translated not is one that implies absolutely that love excludes boasting. And the word boast here is translated from a, a Greek word that appears only here in the Greek New Testament. The thing we call hapax, the gluminin. It means to boast, alright, that is to heap praises on oneself. To heap praises on oneself. Hence, if a person has love, the individual will not engage in self-praise or being boastful towards the object of love. You see, we notice that envy is associated with someone's uh, success. So if a person has love and boasts in such a way as to arouse envy in another person, then that individual is without love. For if you love an individual, you will avoid putting them or putting the person in a situation where the individual will sin. That's part of having love. You try not to put somebody that you love in a position where that person will sin. Now the fact that love excludes boasting, suggesting that the apostle reminds the Corinthians of lack of love among them. We say this because although it is a different uh, Greek word that is used previously in this epistle for boasting, the apostle had referenced boasting severally. For example, the apostle had indicated that no one should boast about anything that they have because it is a gift from God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. First Corinthians chapter four verse seven. First Corinthians chapter four verse seven. It is for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did, did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So the apostle rebuked the Corinthians for boasting in the conduct of one of their members who is in an unacceptable sexual relationship with a stepmother as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6.
Erase. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast walks through the whole batch of dough? So it's, it's also possible that the apostle will also have had in mind the Corinthians who boast about the knowledge they claim to possess. As the apostle had already contrasted between knowledge that puffs up and love that builds up others in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. It is now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge pours up, but love builds up. So the point is that by the apostle giving the second negative description of love, in that a person who has love and voice boasting has reminded the Corinthians that they do not have the love that is his concern in this 13th chapter of First Corinthians. Now the third negative description of love that is related to the second is concerned with pride. As stated next in 1 Corinthians 12, in chapter 13, verse 4, where we are starting, it reads, It is not proud, that again, love is not proud. Now the expression, is proud, is translated from a Greek verb that literally means to blow up, to inflate, to inflate. But figuratively, it means to puff up or to make proud. Now, the word is used in the New Testament only by Apostle Paul. He uses it seven times, and six of these are found in his first epistle to the Corinthians. Now, the only other usage of the word as a first Corinthians is in his epistle to the Colossians, where he used it to encourage believers to live in fullness of Christ in, his, uh, his, uh, in terms of those who have uh, become so arrogant about certain things. So he, in his appeals to them, he used it to encourage them to live in a way that they have the fullness of Christ. And so our word then is translated puffed up with angel worship as stated in Colossians 2 verse 18. Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. It is, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up. That's a Greek word. Here it's translated puffs up with idle notions. 
Now anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4, the apostle used the Greek word in the sense of being proud or being puffed up. That is of course to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception. Now love excludes being puffed up because love is devoured of anything sinful. Now when a believer thinks more highly of self for whatever reason that person ignores instruction that demands a believer not to do so. Especially because of something that a person received graciously from God. And I'm referring to the instruction of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 3. Romans chapter 12 verse 3. Romans chapter 12 verse 3. It is, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with uh, sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So, if you think more of yourself than reality permits, then you will have no, re- no room to be sensitive to the concern of others. So it will be difficult for you to exercise love under such uh, situations. So anyway, to be puffed up or to be engaged in pride makes it impossible for a person to exercise love. Hence, pride is excluded from love. Or it is that which will not exist where love exists. You see, when a person is more or less self-centered, that means the person is puffed up or grossed up with engulfed uh, with self. And when you do that, you don't have room for another person. Don't even have room for God, let alone loving Him. And so, when a person does that, the person cannot love another human being. Because you can never be sensitive. You are more occupied with yourself. And every other person doesn't matter. Anyway, this third description of what love avoids, that is pride should also remind the Corinthians that for the most part, they do not have the law of the apostle is concerned in the passage that we are studying. Since the apostle had already indicated that some of them were arrogant or proud, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. First Corinthians First Corinthians chapter four verse nineteen reads But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, 
with what power they have. See that phrase, these arrogant people, is literally the ones who have become arrogant. The ones who have become arrogant, since it is the Greek verb used in the third negative description of love that is really used here in 1 Corinthians 4 verse uh, 19. Now the fourth negative description of love is concerned with unacceptable behavior or manner as stated in the first sentence then of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Where he said, it is not rude. In other words, love is not rude. Now, interesting though, the 2011 edition of the NIV translated this Greek this way. It does not dishonor others. That's where they translate it. It does not dishonor others. Now, this is not that surprising when we consider the Greek word used. Now, the Greek... The expression is rude. It's rude. It's translated from a, a, a Greek verb that pertains to acting in defiance of social and moral standards that the public considers commendable with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. Hence, the word means to behave disgracefully or dishonorably or to behave indecently. Now it appears, the Greek word appears only twice in the Greek New Testament. In other, its other occurrence is in the context of sexual relationship and marriage where it means to not behave in keeping with uh, accepted standards of what is right or proper in certain social groups as in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 36. First Corinthians chapter 7 verse 36. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward a virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. Now, our Greek word, verb, is related to a Greek noun, though. And the Greek adjective that will help in understanding what the apostle could have meant when he wrote about love and says it is not rude. It's not rude. Now the now form of our Greek word that is used in three ways in the scripture. It is used for indecent behavior. Indecent behavior. Such as Sexual acts forbidden and that cause dishonor and shame as it is used to describe homosexuality in Romans 1 verse 27. 
Romans chapter 1 verse 27. It is in the same way the men do the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Indecent acts. Now, that is where you have the concept of shame. Now, we live in a society now that very few people actually see anything wrong with homosexuality of any kind. There are very few now. Many give just a little service to it. There are very few really. And so, those who are involved in in that kind of lifestyle are emboldened to do whatever they think. So, what is indecent is no longer indecent. Yet, as far as God is concerned, it's still indecent. And it should also be the same for every believer who believes the Bible. Now, interestingly, though, the Greek word that we're looking at is used in the apocryphical book of uh, Sirach to describe the shame of a wife that gets drunk. And I'm just going to read it because you, if you like, you can go online and look for it. But I, I just give it to you because you don't have it unless you have uh, some English versions where they put together everything like the Roman Catholic Bible where they have the, the, some part of the apocryphal book or even the New Revised Standard Version. They have some part of it with the apocryphal book. And if you do that, then you will see what I'm going to read from Sirach chapter 26 verse 8. This I'm reading the translation from the New Revised Standard Version. This is where they translated it. A drunken wife arouses great anger. She cannot hide her shame. Now, of course, again, we're living in a time when things that used to be shameful now seem to be tolerable. I mean, it's a shameful thing. I mean, sin is sin. It doesn't matter who you see it in. It's still a sin. But in the, at least in the time past, it was horrifying to see a drunken lady or woman. Today, hmm, nothing to that. Because people have desynthesized themselves for whatever reason it is to accept whatever is sinful and now it is no longer let's see where they look at it. Now another meaning of the Greek now refers to a state of disgrace associated with nakedness as it is used in Revelation chapter 3 verse 18. Revelation chapter 3 verse 18 and put something in in Revelation because I come back to it after one passage. I come right back to it. Revelation 3 verse 18 reads, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and 
high clothes to wear. So you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Still, that's here, of course, it's uh, translated shameful nakedness. Now, still, another meaning of the Greek now pertains to something considered too private for public exposure. Hence, again, nakedness, and so it becomes a euphemism for the genitalia. This is the way the word is used in the Septuagint of Exodus chapter 20 verse 26. Exodus chapter 20 verse 26. Um, uh, the word we're looking at, our Greek word is used in the Septuagint to translate the word nakedness. So here it says, uh, the instruction given to the priest, uh, say, and, and all other people too. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. That, of course, is reference to the genitalia. Now, it is in the sense of the genitalia that the word is used in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. It reads, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Again, referring to the genitalia. Now, the adjective, though, related to our Greek verb that means to behave unbecomingly is a Greek word that is used in Greek literature frequently for something that is not openly done or something not openly displayed or discussed in a reserved society because it is considered shameful or unpresentable, indecent, or unmentionable. Unmentionable. Now the word is then applied especially to sexual matters. Thus the word is used in the Septuagint to describe the rape of uh, Dinah, uh, Jacob's daughter, as that which is shameful. Or disgraceful that causes brothers to go for war, so to say, against those who did that in Genesis chapter 34, verse 7. Genesis chapter 34, verse 7. Genesis chapter 34 verse 7 reads, Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard 
what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing that is raping their sister. A disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. A thing that should not be done. So here we see it referring to something uh, sexual of course. So the noun then and the adjective are related to our Greek uh, word that means to behave unbecomingly imply that the verb then may refer to a behavior that is not expected as it relates to sexual concept with, uh, which becomes important in interpreting what the apostle had in mind. Now this notwithstanding, the sensing of the word in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 is to behave unbecomingly to behave unbecomingly. That is, to not behave in keeping with accepted standards of what is right or proper in certain social uh, uh, groups. So the meaning then of the Greek word translated rude in the 1984 edition of the NIV as meaning to behave unbecomingly implies in when where love exists, one could not act in a manner that is not in keeping with an acceptable standard of conduct. Notice, wherever, it's not just rude. It's, you can't act in a way that is inconsistent with unacceptable conduct. Now, since the word here, related to our Greek word, uh, verbs, are concerned with sexual conduct as well, we cannot say that love will not be involved in anything sexual that is incompatible with God's standard. Love cannot involve that. Now notice what I say, incompatible, incompatible with God's standard. So this means that when people who are not married have sex under the guise of love, that is wrong. That's not love. Another guy is not, according to the Bible's definition. It may be for the world, but that's not love. Because we also live in a time when I just don't know what's going on with even parents. That you would think they know better. And they said, somehow they don't. And so they're glorifying certain things that ought to be shameful among teenagers, for example. They say, no, no one is hot. That, that no one is harmed with anything is not a standard. Standard is what is sinful. And the Bible has defined. So here, rude is not just, you know, people think, you've been rude to me. No, this is dealing with specific things about acting in a way that is unacceptable, especially within the sexual concept. Anyway, so then now again, all I'm saying is that those, those who are not married, when they have sex under the, the, the guise of love, that, that's not love. Such a sexual relationship could not possibly be an expression of love that is from God the Holy Spirit. Now, you all remember many years ago, and I say it, and I, I didn't blink when I said that. And I say this, how many of you married couples give thanks before you have sex with your husband or your wife? 
Now, if you cannot have give thanks to God, then you know you're doing something wrong. And that is why this is part of what we say here. You cannot. And it claim that I love you. No, you don't. Now, that aside, though, it is important to understand that where love exists, one will not act indecently or speak in a vulgar manner towards the object of love. So the point is that love excludes improper conduct and improper speech. And that, of course, is part of what we have, but we're out of time, and we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here, or someone listening over the internet, that you do not have life yet. All that you had this morning may or may not have made sense to you. Because you're spiritually dead. You don't have life. You're moving around physically, but you're dead. That is to say, if you drop dead right now, you'll be in the lake of fire. Where there is tremendous, horrible suffering of unimaginable proportion. That caused the Son of God, who created it, to come to die so that you will not go there. And the way you escape it. Because it is not a place, it's not a picnic. And I keep reminding people that it is not a prison where you go and after 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years you come out. This is a suffering for all eternity. There's no ending to it. I mean, it is so horrifying that I don't know of why a human being would want to be in hell, for example. So, here is the opportunity. If you are hearing this, and you don't have life yet, this is because God loves you. He doesn't want you there. He made it because there are those who are not going to believe in him. So that's who he made it. Actually, he made it for the devil and his followers. So, you can escape that. How? The Bible tells you that God loves you so much. He proved, he proved that love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this sin-stricken world to die for your sins and my sins. In spite of all the things they did to him. Yet, he never complained. They beat him up, rushed him up. But we're told that if you knew him, if you recognize him, when he came out of the praetorium, the Romans have so roughed him up that his face was so disfigured you couldn't recognize who he was. That was a kind of suffering. He never complained. He never, even for a moment, complained about it. And he had the power to do something. Which means he can just blow his word and all of them will become dust. But he didn't do that. And they laid him up to Golgotha. Nailed him and put him up on that cross. And they put that challenge to him and said, if you are the son of God, come down and we'll believe you. He could have done that. And if he did, we all go to hell. But in his love, he looked at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Something he's saying about you and me. You don't know what you're doing. That's why he's there for you. So if you believe in him, if you believe that when he went to that cross, the last three hours, your sins and the sins of the whole world we are being judged on the Son of God. That was so painful, so unbearable. The separation between him and the Father and the Holy Spirit for those three hours was so unbearable. 
that he had to let out that cry, Eloi, Eloi, Lemasubakatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible again said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you have life through his name. If you believe that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, you will receive eternal life. So no matter what your sins are, they will completely forgive him. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will continue to impress upon us the importance and the necessity of love in our lives. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.